I'm Bernadette Nguyen, and welcome to the Audiocraft podcast. This podcast was produced and recorded on the land of the Wangal people and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present and acknowledge that this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. For this season of the Audiocraft podcast, we're taking you behind the scenes into the production of our podcasts. We'll be speaking with the Audiocraft producers about the series they've been working on and how they've made them. In this episode, I'm chatting with my team about the making of Search Engine Sex. Search Engine Sex is a podcast answering all of the most search, sex and relationship questions online. Host Rowdy Walden speaks to the experts to find out all the answers to questions like, how long does sex last? And is there someone better out there for me? The series was Spotify Australia's first original podcast and won gold at the Australian Podcast Awards for Best Sex and Relationship Podcast in 2020. I spoke to creator and host Rowdy Walden and one of Audiocraft's senior producers, Selena Shannon, about what it was like developing the idea into a full production, the process of making sure we were giving out factual advice, and the surprising connection we developed with our audience. This episode was recorded remotely and in lockdown in August 2021. And as a warning, this episode contains explicit content. Here's Rowdy's take on where Search Engine Sex all started. So it really came about looking at the sort of things that I was personally worried about in life and love or, you know, all of the things that I would be uh, researching. The sort of the questions and the holes in my knowledge about sex that I had and through that process, uh, many, many nights uh, staring into my phone in bed, wondering what the rash was, led me down a path of finding out, you know, the questions that other people were Googling. And it, you know, it turned out that there was a, a big list and a big data set of questions that people had and, and that people were Googling all over the world. And yeah, it kind of spawned from there. You know, I think it's that like reverse engineering almost of like, instead of making a podcast and hoping that people, you know, and hoping it finds an audience sort of answering an audience's questions. So that was kind of fun. Like, you know, thinking about a podcast from the audience perspective from the beginning. And also who just doesn't love talking about sex? (laughs) And why did you think a podcast was the most suitable format for that? I'd never made podcasts before and Spotify had this like call out for podcasting ideas. And I think, you know, it was seizing an opportunity that was there for me as a creator but then also it like it, sex and this type of topic lends itself very much to podcasting and, you know, that intimate nature of being able to talk to people in their ear or like, you know, be able to have a sort of secretive conversation with people about things that are, you know, things that people might sort of still find a little bit taboo. So I think it was kind of, you know, I think there are certain genres that work really well in podcasting and I think sex is one of them. So the idea then became a part of Spotify's podcast bootcamp program, Sound Up. Can you talk about the program and how it helped you further develop the idea? Yeah. So it was like a week long bootcamp. Yeah. Is probably the best word where we sort of, uh, there's a bunch of Indigenous people who had pitched in ideas from all over Australia. And we sort of got sat in a room with some big wigs from Spotify US and from the get-go had to sort of pitch our idea. And, and, you know, it was this process every day of having to develop it and then re-pitch it and develop it and re-pitch it. You know, it sort of went through every single aspect of making a podcast, like the audience and the tone. And I remember there was, 
I think it was called like, they wanted to know the color or the texture of the podcast and like just really far out things. And I'd never even considered or concepts that I haven't even thought about when like making a podcast um, that I really struggled with. But in the end, you know, it turned out to be this really good process because you walked away not only with the ability to have the ear of, you know, Spotify, but you just walked away knowing your idea inside and out. And, you know, they got us to make a trailer and they got us to like build out this sort of pitch deck. And so, yeah, it was this intensive development period basically. And so Spotify then decided to take the show on as the first Spotify original in Australia in 2019. And Audiocraft was hired to be a production partner for the show. Selena, can you talk to us about how Audiocraft and Spotify worked together to turn this idea into a moving production? So it was a very collaborative process in that Rowdy had arrived with this great idea um, and then through Audiocraft's participation in the Sound Up boot camp, we all kind of had a relationship together. So Rowdy, Audiocraft and Spotify. And we, we worked together to turn his idea into to take it from idea form into a production plan to make it into a podcast. And Spotify were really supportive and great in telling us what kind of flavor and sound they wanted for their first original podcast. But it was really the work between Audiocraft and Rowdy that shaped the idea and got it ready for production. Yeah, I think when I arrived, you know, the day that they were like, let's turn into a thing, I thought that I was ready to go. But it, it really wasn't until you had like hands-on producers poking out the holes or pointing out the bits that, you know, unless you had that sort of production brain or like the sort of nuts and bolts of it that I was like, oh, okay, there is, there is actually all these things I hadn't thought about. One of the things that we came up with was this idea that we wanted the podcast to come out every week, but it was a lot of production work to make a full-length episode for a weekly release. So we decided to alternate between full-length episodes and bite-sized mini-episodes, which we called quickies. So every odd week, there was a half-hour-long episode that went into a lot of detail around a question. And every even week, there was a five-minute episode that was a much smaller kind of snackable version of the show. What's the step-by-step of how both of these types of episodes get made? Well, we had to start off by narrowing down the questions that we wanted to cover in the first season. So these were the most Googled sex and relationship questions that we wanted to tackle. And then we had to divide them into, you know, which questions need a full length episode to do properly and which questions could be better addressed in a five minute quickie. So there was that kind of big picture editorial decision making that we had to do very early on. But once those questions had been decided on, we had to go out and find interview guests to have in each episode. Um, We had to research the subject matter that we would be tackling and we had to find out kind of what angles our audience would be interested in. So all of that information research was done in those first phases of production. And then once we had that sorted out, we basically turned those ideas into episode outlines, a kind of like dot point summary of what each episode would contain. And then those outlines became our roadmaps for producing each episode. Yeah, I think you would think that with a topic like sex, you'd be able to talk about anything and it would be a good episode, but it really took us a lot of work to finesse what would make each episode a great episode. Like I remember we had this discussion about foreskins and I was like, this is such a great idea. Why are we not doing this as a half hour? But 
it would have been a good episode, but it wouldn't have been a great episode. And it was sort of that process of finding out what was, what was the best format to answer each question in the best way possible. A really big part of the concept was about how people are getting a lot of advice from the internet about sex and relationships. And a lot of it is misinformation. So what was the process of ensuring that the show actually gave factual information? Yeah, I think Search Engine Sex, more than being the definitive answers to these questions that we were tackling, it was just providing a conversation around them with different viewpoints. But one of the steps that we took to try and make sure that at least the information we were giving was correct and not going to mislead anyone was that Rowdy and I would do a lot of research. We'd kind of try and find the answers ourselves and prep the interviews with our guests. Then we'd talk to the experts or to whoever we had chosen for that episode and get all the information from them. But the final versions of the scripts would be handed over to a guy named James Finlay, who's an expert in public health, specializing in sexual health. And he would do a final pass of our scripts and try and um, spot anything that was glaringly wrong or misleading or outdated information. So it wasn't just coming down to the research that Rowdy and I were doing or to the one expert that we had on the show. We kind of had a second pair of eyes going over it to make sure that the information we were giving was the best that it could be. I think what's interesting about sex education is so much of it is verging on matter of opinion in that choosing what's important and what to emphasize and how to frame things. People have different views on how that should be done, on what should be emphasized and what should be prioritized. And so I think it was interesting as a team to have conversations about which parts of sex and relationships we thought were the most important and how we thought those things should be framed to keep people safe, to feel relevant in the current day and age. Um, but also to be factually correct. Those conversations in our team were so interesting because we were all coming to these topics with different life experiences and different sex and relationship experiences. The second season was so different in the fact that we wanted to incorporate user-generated questions, but the start of the second season really started with us having a big brainstorm coming from like our own genders, our own sexualities, our own races and putting in the things that we thought were big sex topics and then cross-referencing that with like the questions that we got from the audience. So I think it was always interesting making the show with the three of us because we we all had such different experiences with sex. Yeah, definitely. And talking about experts, how do you choose who's going to be the expert of the, of an episode? We tried to get a good balance, um, of different types of voices in there so that we weren't just hearing from academics or doctors because we didn't want the sex and relationship experience to be reduced to just a medical opinion or to an academic opinion. Um, So we tried to balance it out across the show and find some topics where we were talking to relationship counsellors but other topics where we were talking to, you know, someone who'd been on The Bachelor to get this variety of viewpoints on sex and relationships. And we didn't want to be too restrictive in how we defined an expert because, you know, someone who's been dating for many years and has had a variety of experiences in in sex and relationships is kind of an expert on it. I also think it was, for me, a really conscious decision that even though, you know, this show might look like it falls into sex education, that it wasn't really sex education. It was more like a conversation. And, you know, to Selena's point about making sure that it wasn't just medical things, because I think that scares people off in in anything, like even with COVID, like you have to sort of find the the humanity or like the the part of the conversation that's going to draw people in from their own personal 
perspective. And we did really try to draw that out of even the medical professionals. And there was an episode with Dr. Gemma Sharp and she was like, well, this is how I personally wash my vagina. And I was like, this is exactly what search engine sex is. I think it was really challenging, though, to find a good spread of guests because not only did we want diversity of expertise, we also wanted diversity of gender and sexuality and experience. Um, We also wanted a variety of people who were single and in relationships. But then on top of that, you're trying to find guests who are happy to talk about sex and relationships, which is already such a personal, private, vulnerable topic of discussion. And so you might have found someone who you thought was the perfect guest, but unless they were up for it, then it wasn't going to work. And then the other layer on top of that is, you know, there are topics where you want the best expert in the world or the best expert in Australia to cover it, but they turn out to just be a cis white person. And it's like, oh, okay, well, damn, you know, like every time we turn this corner, the best person in the field is a cis white person. And so trying to find a balance of like having the person versus the right person. I remember when we were thinking of doing a foreskin episode and looking at genitals and we were asking around some of the people that we'd interviewed in season one, you know, who do you recommend? Who's an expert on genitals that we can talk to in season two? And we were pointed <laughs> we were pointed in the direction of this man who was an academic who was kind of Australia's leading expert on, on genitalia. <laughs> and he was in his 90s and retired and just the thought of him being the genital expert on search engine sex, it actually could have been really funny. And really great. But also the thought that no one else took his shoes, like no one took his place. They were like, oh yeah, he just retired. So now there's no one. So with the whole diversity thing, because I think a lot of media publications that wrote about the show actually pointed to the diversity of the show. Can you speak a bit about that and like why that was so important to both of you? I think it was important because part of the problem with sex education in Australia and around the world for such a long time is that it gave a really narrow view of sex and relationships. It was really heteronormative. It was really focused on abstinence and purity and withholding and kind of being well-behaved in a way that was totally unrealistic, um, but also just not the majority of people's experiences. So we really wanted to create a show that was inclusive and didn't make anyone feel alienated based on their sexuality or gender or style of relationship. So that's why we thought diversity was really important. And diversity meant so many things under the banner of the show because, you know, within the world of sex and relationships, there are so many categories and subdivisions and identities that we wanted to cater to. Yeah. And then just in terms of like diversity of voices, I mean, the show came about from a First Nations funding thing from Spotify. So it just made sense for me that we would look for black and brown people to be part of the show or people of color to be part of the show. And yeah, and just not, you know, not make it this white academic thing that it always seems to be. What do you think were the challenges of making Search Engine Sex? Well, we made it in the bloody pandemic. And so we never actually met each other for, I reckon, 90% of, I think I came into the office once and then we never saw each other again. Most of it was recorded in my bedroom. Most of our like conversations and brainstorming sessions were done over Skype, which is like the most awful thing to talk to people over. 
And so I, I, I still think we did a, did a bang up job of making a show, but it was just like, you know, trying to find our groove with each other as three people that have never worked together, let alone been in the same room together for an extended period of time and are now talking about like such intimate topics with each other. But I feel like we pulled it off. I feel like we we, we found that groove and it worked quite well in the end. I mean, it's an award-winning podcast, so... Um. <laughs> <laughs> so something worked. Something worked. <laughs> From my perspective, I think the biggest challenge was finding the right voices for the episodes and finding the right guests. I think that one of the barriers we came up against time and time again was that some of our questions were really niche, even though they had broad appeal and obviously being the most Googled sex questions, you know, they they were on a lot of people's minds, but the the subject matter was actually very zoomed in and niche. And so to find someone who can talk about you know, foreskins for half an hour or something like that it was a bit tricky when you're also trying to cater to different genders and sexualities and experiences um, and not just falling back on an academic perspective every time. But then I, I think that goes a long way to like say, oh, this is not about the podcast, but you know, like, it, like I think that's a bigger conversation of like, well, people have these really specific questions about very specific things. And why is that? You know, why do people have this why is, why is everyone asking this really niche question? I think another challenge was also making a show that didn't make anyone feel judged. Um, you know, a lot of the topics that we were talking about were really sensitive um, topics and some of them, you know, might have involved um, a social criticism, for example, when we did an episode about how men, straight men are much less likely to go and get STI checks than any other type of person. And, you know, we wanted the show to be supportive and encouraging and make a positive difference. And, and with some of the subject matter, it was really tricky to find that balance. For me, I felt like one of the bigger challenges, and again, this probably does lean into like, you know, more questions about society and our problems with sex education, sex and relationship education, was just like, it was so easy for, I know me in particular, to fall into the crutch of, let's blame society, let's blame the media for, um, you know, giving us this certain perception of what a relationship or what good sex is meant to be like. And it was hard to find a direct answer to like, why do we feel these feelings or like, why do we think this way? Aside from blaming, like, once again, media or porn's the big one. Were there any specific learnings in creating the show that really shifted your perception of audio production? I think making a podcast in the pandemic, like during lockdown, made me appreciate how uh, adaptable and flexible podcasting is. If this had been a TV show, lockdown would have shut it down. Uh, but we found a way to move into our cupboards and do it remotely and still produce a fantastic award-winning podcast. So I think it gave me a greater appreciation for podcasting and audio production. I think the biggest thing that I've learned from making a podcast, uh, this being my first one, is that a little bit of confidence in knowing that your ideas are good. Because, you know, if you make TV, you never really have that direct relationship with the audience to be like, was that good or was that bad? It sort of just goes off, it goes to air, and then, you know, you might get a message or two on social media. But the medium of podcasting really gave us a connection to the audience. And I think that's reflected in season two, you know, where we were able to sort of use them as part of the show. I think for me, like, just like you, Rowdy, this was like my first 
podcast production because previous to this I'd mainly worked on like in community radio or making um, documentaries sort of by myself and having to rely on myself. And so I feel like this is like just a learning of like moving from individual audio making to like teamwork, audio making, having someone, and I'm shouting out Tiffany Dimack here, having someone else completely control sound engineering and just like fully concentrating on that makes a world of a difference, especially when you do come from a background of like just doing everything by yourself. You're listening to the audio so many times, just having someone else with fresh ears whose like entire skill set is to make it sound really good is makes a world of a difference for the final product. Absolutely. And I think like there was no way that this show would have ever has been as good if we didn't have every single part of the team here. Like there, there was always fresh eyes or another opinion, um, I, you know, especially for myself to call out things that were biases of my own or things that I didn't realise were big knowledge gaps or things that, you know, mattered to people of different genders or different races when it came to sex. So I think we just had the best team. We really did. <laughs> we had a great team. It's like the bloody dream team. I'm sure listeners are curious about how it all sounds. So let's move on to our favourite parts of the show. Rowdy, do you want to start with what clip you've brought in? Okay, so my clip is from our episode with Benji Ra. The episode is called um, Are You a Porn Category? She is talking about her experiences dating as a trans person. And this is my favourite part of the podcast, uh, not because it's funny or because we've answered any big question, but it's the part of the podcast that started the most conversations with people. This has been the one that sort of starts a conversation with people and starts a conversation that I think a lot of people never really had with themselves. And I experienced that so much as a trans person. You know, it's like I'm like when I was like, transitioning in my early days it was just like constant harassment from men on the street because it was like I mean trans women experience this all the time it's like I want to fuck you or I want to fight you oh I want to kill you so it was like constantly like oh I don't know how to like be honest with my desire like men being like I don't know how to be honest with my desire and like and be respectful so I'm going to lash out because I'm confused in the situation and I'm acting out of violence that's violence built around shame And Selena, what about you? What clip have you brought in? So I've got a clip from the episode that we made called How to Deal When You Feel Like the Last Single Friend. And basically this episode had Melissa Mason on as the guest and she's a podcaster and magazine editor who has written a bunch of sex and relationship columns over her career. And I really like this clip because the whole episode had been so funny and Rowdy and Melissa had been bouncing off each other with really great chemistry. And then it kind of pivots into this serious moment um, when they both start talking about loneliness. And I thought it was just such an effective example of how search engine sex can balance the funny and the serious, especially around this topic of the grass being greener on the other side, which I think is a huge part of any conversation about sex and relationships. This idea of, are we happy with what we've got Does what other people have look better? Is it really better? Um, And that constant comparison. So I thought it was a really important conversation that was handled really beautifully by the two of them. Do you ever just feel lonely? Yes. I think 
When I did feel lonely was probably during like COVID when my sister started seeing her partner um, and those nights where I then didn't have any company. And then, yeah, I would feel a little bit lonely just because I was aware of my singleness, I suppose. My um, Josie, who's the co-host of Zestis History, she had a baby and I went over and I would just see her with her partner and the baby. And I remember leaving and saying, like messaging her and being like, oh, like it's like it's nice to see you guys together, but also it makes me a bit sad because it's like I want that. And she's like, yeah, but Mel, like on the flip side, you leave and I think I want that. I want to be able to just go do whatever. I can't. Like it's all people's situations. It's that grass is greener shit, which, you know, is so like cliche, but it's true. It's like... No one's life is this idyllic existence. So the clip that I'm bringing in is a a quickie episode, which is a guide to edging. And I think a guide to edging was just the perfect example of what a quickie episode should have been. It gives you the straight facts. It was entertaining. And yeah, I just really loved the way it came out. So it's creeping to the edge of an orgasm and then stopping yourself right before you come. Now, why would you want to do that? Potentially, edging can be a great way to have a bit more time to explore before potentially your first or second or third orgasm, depending on where you're at. And that you also get to bring more blood to potentially the genitals or whichever part of your body you're exploring. Your nerve endings activate, your arousal tissue engorges, and it means that you have greater capacity for pleasure. And there are loads of benefits. Edging can help people with vaginas orgasm more easily. It can help build body confidence or create a deeper connection with your partner. And so this is the last question for the podcast makers listening to this episode. What are everyone's key takeaways for the podcast making process? You just should have done it sooner. If you're like listening to this because you're worried about or you're thinking about making an idea, then it's just do it sooner. Like your idea is probably very profitable. It's probably got an audience waiting to lap it up. Um, I, I wish I had done search engine sex sooner. I think something that search engine sex refined over the course of production was the sound and style and format of the show. And it took us quite a few episodes to really nail that down. And once we had worked out what the style and tone and format was, it became so much easier to pull episodes together because we had this blueprint that we knew was the perfect formula for a perfect search engine sex episode. Without making them sound too cookie cutter, um, it meant that we could much more easily and quickly work out if a question was the right question for a search engine sex episode, whether a guest was the right guest or not, whether an angle was the right angle, um, because we had nutted out exactly what search engine sex looks, feels and sounds like. And if we'd done that earlier, it would have been a much, um, it would have been an, an even smoother ride, I think. I think for me, the key takeaway is, I know this is like very typical, like, podcaster answer but like audience is like a really big thing that you have to think about I think with search engine sex it really stood out to me with like the relationship with the audience because there was such a strong focus on building an Instagram audience and that made 
like the world of a difference. It really did make you feel like you were answering questions that people really wanted. And Rowdy, you can speak to this, but like people were literally DMing the search engine sex Instagram page being like, you need to do an episode on this or on that. And that was like, oh, okay, like, cool. So people are listening firstly. And secondly, people have questions and they, they think we're the experts, which is great. There was obviously a gap in the market because like it was just, I mean, it still happens. People still message me about things. I'm like, I don't know the answer, but hello. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Well, that's it. Uh, Thanks so much for making the time to chat today, everyone. It's been a pleasure working with you both. Oh, my God. Thanks, Bernie. Oh, thanks, Bernie. It was a pleasure working with you guys as well. Thanks to creator and host Rowdy Walden and Audiocraft senior producer Selena Shannon for making time to chat about the making of Spotify Australia's award-winning podcast, Search Engine Sex. The Audiocraft podcast is produced by Laura Briley-Newton and mixed by Glenn Morrow. Music is by James Milsom. If you haven't already, subscribe to the Audiocraft podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's also a whole back catalogue of audio advice for you to explore. If you want to learn more about how Audiocraft tackles workflow, or maybe you just like the sound of Selena's voice, scroll back a bit into your feed and check out our episode from season five, Could Go With The Flow. Before you get really stuck into the spreadsheets and into workflow, you need to scaffold out the content of your story because that's going to determine what work needs to be done. So these steps I'm going to explain in a linear way, but I think something that's important to think about with workflow and these big projects is that even though I'll be describing them linearly, they don't necessarily happen consecutively. There's a lot of overlap. A lot of these steps need to happen at the same time. You might start one, start another, and then return to the first one. And that's just the nature of creative projects. You can keep in touch by finding us on Twitter and Instagram at AudiocraftPod and by signing up to our newsletter at audiocraft.com.au.